Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I grew up in the Inland Empire and up the Central Coast. Childhood wasn't great. Uh, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of uncertainty uh, in the home on both sides because I come from a, a divorced family. Um, we moved a lot. Every year it was a new school. Uh, there was a lot of illegal activity taking place within the home, drugs manufacturing, growing, uh, two very different cultures and sides of the family. So that made it hard. There was a lot of identity that I didn't know who I was. Um, you know, I have a Hispanic side who's very, very Hispanic. And then I have a, a white side who is very European descent, white. <laughs> so going back and forth was difficult. Became, you know, like uh, wild. It wasn't bad, I wasn't a bad kid. I just had no structure. I left the home at 15 due to the abuse starting to come my direction. I moved in with my father who was active in his addictions and met a boy. structure, uh, was popular, was on the football team, um, brought up in a church, and so we started dating, and then I got pregnant at 17, and we had decided we were not going to have the child. And during that time, the boy was a victim of a violent crime, and we all didn't think he was going to live. So I had his family begging me to have this child. I had my mother reminding me of my original plan and what I, reasons why that were behind it. And then I had my father's side, who's Catholic, telling me I'm gonna go to hell if I go that route. I, in turn, decided to have the baby out of the love in my heart because I really did believe that he was not gonna make it. And so I had a little boy. And due to all the hardships of my son's father actually surviving this accident and going through all the rehabilitation process of having to eat, learn to eat, walk, talk, uh, everything over again, that was uh, very heavy and a lot of stress. And for both of us, we decided that we were going to separate because he wanted to be with his parents and his parents had recently relocated due to work. So my son's father and I go our separate ways. My son goes with me, and my son is with me for the next six years. 
know, truly life's hard and confusing and I'm just lost from childhood up until that point. And although I'm not a full-blown addict at that time, the behaviors are starting to present themselves. It's becoming obvious to family and to his father. So his father and my family decide to petition for custody and remove my son from my home. It was at that point that I, I did, I lost it. I just gave up, I gave in. The only thing that I've created that was good and loved so completely has been removed from me that I just really didn't have anything else to live for. So I drank as I needed to drink to, and I used as I needed to use. When I finally kind of caught a criminal case that kept me in jail for almost a year, I had enough time to kind of get some clarity and I needed to get back to what was missing. And that was my son. I come down here, Loma Linda, where my grandparents live, and the people that I was running into and contact here were all the people that I knew when I was a child. They were just doing the same old thing. And I didn't even have half a chance from the time I got here to try and reconnect with my son and do the things that I had set out to do and the reason why I came here. And so I ended up out under the 210 and the 10 for about a year, from 2010 to 2011. There was a person who attached themselves to me. He was also very abusive. And one time, my son, I guess, got wind that I'm in town and, okay, where's my mom? I'm gonna go find her. He's 16 at this point. When we did finally meet up, that person was with me. And that person ended up getting in my son's face. Ended up getting wild with him, like, because he didn't know who he was. So um, I got really scared. Just as calm as I'm saying this is just as calm as I was when the thought ran across my my mind. I'm gonna have to kill this person if he does something to my son. So it was that moment that I believe change started to take place. So my son ended up leaving that moment, and I was sitting under the ten and the two fifteen and. I had a cigarette hanging off my lip that had been probably there for the last 48 hours. I had my drink in my hand, which I always had. And this guy's going back and forth, and I don't even know where he went to, because he generally wouldn't even leave my side. And, you know, it's pretty noisy there. The, free, the, the airplane, the freeway, the train tracks are about 100 feet away. And I just got this deafening silence. There was a voice that resided within me that said, you're gonna have to stop. And that's what I did. I don't remember what took place from that time to the time I ended up on my grandparents' couch in their living room. My grandma had walked out and said, okay, your grandfather wants to help you, but she goes, if you're gonna be here, all you're gonna do is go to church, work, and home. That's it. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it, whatever. I was so tired, I was just that, I was done. So I uh, really started like just listening to the word and paying attention and started finding a sense of solace and you know some peace when going. And then there was a point where I kind of started looking forward to going. You know, I would make a joke with my grandfather that um, I've got a date with God, you know, I got to get ready, you're in my way, you're in the bathroom, you know, my turn. You know, I was doing my AANA, some rigorous therapies, and in the midst of this, I went to Axe, 
I met with someone there, was reaching out for resources, um, bus passes, maybe some food vouchers, something of that nature. And within that was the jobs program. And from the jobs program, I found myself in the grips of people within the Seventh-day Adventist community. And they all really just showed love. All the love that I've been given has really just like poured into me and softened me. I'm currently in school. I want to pursue a degree in social sciences. I hope to work with troubled youth. I reflect on that time because it's like, after developing who I believe my God is, and he is loving, kind, understanding, compassionate, genuine, real, that was God that day. And here I am today. I don't want to let my God down because my God hasn't let me down. Is that an amazing story? I want to see 10, 50, 100, 1,000 more stories like that coming out of this community and this congregation that seeks to serve everybody that Christ puts in our path. As I watch Robin's story, I am struck by the profound transformation, the dramatic change. The obvious question to ask is, how did that happen? How did a change like that come about? And as you heard in the story, there were many elements, many facets to that, many important ingredients to the change in her life. I want to focus on one that I would contend is a key reason. It's what she spoke of at the end. It's her words about God, who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do for her, how the God of her understanding shaped and transformed her life. That's a key ingredient, a central ingredient to who she is today, which become the opening words for our series in camp meeting. A Life That Matters is the name of our series. Our theme is to focus on how to live a life that matters. How do we do that? We're going to look at five ingredients in the five weeks of camp meeting to the living of a life that matters. Today we begin with the first one. We begin with God. We begin with where Robin ended. Who is God? Who is God to you? Who is the God of your understanding? That's a key question. It's a key question because of a statement that I'd like you to remember from today. Everything I say today really has to do with this one key statement. And that statement is this. The character of the God you serve will determine the influence of the life you live. The character of the God you serve will determine the impact of the life you live. Therefore, we have to ask, who is God? Who is your God? How do you understand God? 
Now, it's no secret to any of you that there are a great many misunderstandings about God in the world today. It doesn't take listening to talk radio, to Christian talk radio, to reading print media very long before you realize there are many competing theories and understandings about God. People are confused. Who are we talking about here? It's like Michael Hodgson driving home from church, his five-year-old son in the back seat, has his paper from the children's division, is going through it, says, Dad, how do you spell God? He tells him. His son is writing it down. He's thinking, this is good. This is good. And then his son says, Dad, how do you spell Zilla? <laughs> and suddenly Michael realized, we're not talking about God. We're talking about Godzilla. What are you doing back there? Confusion and uncertainty. Who are we talking about? Who is this being? Also reminds me of another young child. The teacher was teaching the children's division, preschool division, and asked of the kids that day, who knows where God lives? One little boy's hand shot up immediately. She said, yes, where does God live? Where do you think God lives? He says, God lives in our bathroom. <laughs> teacher was really rather put off. She, had no, she said, your bathroom? What in the world would make you think God lives in your bathroom? He said, because my dad goes to that bathroom door every morning and bangs on it and says, good Lord, are you still in there? <laughs> you just don't know what kids will hear and what they'll say and what conclusions they will draw. Who is God? Now, if we stay with that phrase, the character of the God you serve will determine the impact of the life you live, then it becomes vital to understand God. Maybe the better question is to ask, who is the God of Scripture? If you listen to the understandings of God today, they tend to veer off in one of two directions. Either on the one hand, God is all soft and cuddly and kind. On the other hand, God is filled with ire and revenge and punishment. So who is he? I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in Exodus 33 and 34. It's an important passage because one scholar at least says there may be no other passage that so clearly underlines for us the realities of God as this one. But some context before we read it. The children of Israel are on their way from Egypt to Canaan. They have already come to Sinai. Sinai was the place where the mountain shook, rattled, and rolled, where God appeared in fire and flame and smoke, where Moses ascended the mountain to meet face to face with God because the people were scared to death, saying, no, 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 you go talk to him. We can't deal with this. Majestic God. They've already come through there. They have said, we want this covenantal relationship. We're on board. We'll sign on the dotted line. So they have a relationship, a covenant with God. It takes them, give or take a few days, about six weeks to break that covenant and to have Moses find them dancing around the golden calf. Moses, as you remember, becomes inflamed. He says, what are you doing? He throws down the tablets of the law, breaks them to pieces, and there's a whole folder all that follows that as they try to work that through. But now we're just a bit further down the road. 
Now we come to the place where Moses is in conversation, in dialogue with God. That entire section of their relationship together is remarkable when you read the exchange and the openness that Moses has with God and God has with Moses. Clearly, Moses is still thinking about what his people have just done. They have violated the covenant, rebelled against its terms. So now his question is about God. Are you going to go with us? What kind of God are you, especially when your people blow it? What kind of God are you? Moses goes so far as to say to God, unless you go with us, I don't even want to go. Unless I have the assurance that you're going alongside me, I don't want any part of it. And God says, no, Moses, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll lead you and guide you all the way. Which causes Moses then to essentially ask, you will? Wow, what kind of God are you anyway? Who are you? We join the story right there, Exodus 33, and verse 18. This is what Moses says next. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Remember, at times, glory can be a code word for character. Show me your glory, show me your character. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where, me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Moses, for understandable reasons, at a time when the people are in bad condition in their covenantal relationship with God, is saying, God, who are you? Show me who you are. He doesn't say it here, but maybe he understands the reality that the character of the God he serves will determine the impact of the life he lives. And so he wants to know who that God is. God says, I'll show you. We continue now in Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Again, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. 
Like I mentioned, if you listen today to the conceptions of God, they can tend to veer in one of two directions. On the one hand, it's rainbows and unicorns, cotton candy clouds and cotton candy, holding hands and singing kumbaya. That's one hand. On the other hand, it's fire and brimstone and judgment and severity and punishment. Our question is, what are we to do with that? What is the picture of the true God of the Bible? And so we listen to what happens between God and Moses. God tells Moses about two aspects to his character. The first aspect is his grace. And if I were to summarize the list that we just read, it, it would be it to say it this way, God's grace is limitless. Limitless. There are seven words, seven images on which God draws to communicate his character to Moses. You heard them there. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Every one of those in the Hebrew is a rich picture, a rich image. Twice is the word hesed, which is the Hebrew word a bit difficult to translate, but which often has been translated as steadfast, enduring love. It is the commitment to the other. It has some similarities to that New Testament Greek word agape. So God is trying to communicate to Moses this is core to who I am. The fact that my grace is limitless is the first thing you have to know about me. Now, that's especially meaningful to Moses because for one thing, the sin of his people, but for another thing is the anger that Moses has had over the sin of his people. And it's as though God is reminding him, yes, I am the high and the holy God. Mountains will quake at my presence, but understand the most important facet of my character is limitless grace to anyone. I love the way the old black preacher said it. He said, the Lord cast all my sins into the depths of the sea, and then he put up a no fishing sign. <laughs> I love that concept. It grows right out of the God of Moses right here. His grace is limitless. But God isn't done. Somewhere along the way, we have gotten the idea that to say grace is limitless and love is boundless means that there is no hard side to love. That it's all yes. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were around children to whom their parents never have said no? Did you enjoy that? Is it an experience you're eager to repeat? Understand that love, true love, robust love, mature love has an ability to say no as well as the ability to say yes. God has said yes, my grace is limitless. But then he adds to that. He says yet, but 
Nevertheless, when you hear that, pay attention. Because it says, what went before is true, but what's about to follow is also true. And then he says two things. And honestly, these two things are hard for many of us to hear. The first thing he says is, despite the fact of my limitless grace, yet I will not leave the guilty unpunished. Whoa. Honestly, that's not real attractive to me. Is it to you? I've been guilty more times than I care to remember. What do you mean? Yet you will not leave the guilty unpunished. That sounds like bad news. I'm not sure I like that as a facet of God's character. Now, you do have to remember, you understand, what God has just said, my grace is limitless, which would mean if his grace is limitless, then any guilty person who has said, I'm sorry, please forgive me, has immediately been alleviated of his or her guilt. It's gone. No fishing, remember? It's finished. So a person who has come in repentance before God, who has said, I'm sorry, has no worry about that statement, none at all. That's not who you are. You are in Christ. And in Christ, you're a new creation, and your relationship with God has been forged in the deep reality of the love of Jesus. So you have no concern with and will not leave the guilty unpunished. But what about those who want own, who won't recognize, who will not say, I'm sorry, that's the guilty. And think about it. Are we sure that we don't like that facet of God's character? To say it another way, wouldn't you rather have a God who carries out justice? Wouldn't you? How about the family? The family that's coming out of the courthouse. The jury has finally rendered its verdict. And, and, and the man responsible for the death of this family's son got off with such a lenient sentence that he turned and laughed at them in court. Do you want to ask them how they feel about the concept of a God who will one day bring about justice? What about the woman? Her whole family was wiped out in the Holocaust. All gone, up in smoke. Ask her, are you glad that there's a facet of God's character that will one day bring justice? That those guards, those officers who so mercilessly murdered your family will one day stand at the tribunal of God are you thankful to know that God is concerned about justice? What about the young girl who is sexually abused? The young boy beaten by his stepfather? The adult man sent to prison? He's innocent but spends decades in prison. What about those people? 
What might they say about a God who says, don't worry, justice will come. Because while my grace is limitless, I am also a God committed to justice. Maybe that line isn't so bad after all. But while it may not be so bad, the next line, <laughs> that's the one that really gets many of us. You've read that line. You've not only read it here, you've read it before in the second commandment, just a few chapters before this. That line about, you know, the children being punished for their parents to the third and the fourth generation. What in the world, God? What are you saying? Are you saying that I'm going to pay, be punished for my dad's, my granddad's, my great-granddad's sins? Allow me to read you two quotations from two different Old Testament scholars. I elected to read them because they say it better than I could. First of all is James Bruckner talking about that very line. The third and fourth generation and children and grandchildren and punishment and all that. Talking about that line, here's what Bruckner says. The NIV translation here has several problems that affect interpretation. First, the translation of the neutral word, pakad, as he punishes, is not helpful in this context. The root means he visits. In certain circumstances, God did visit the people for their sins in a way that constituted an added punishment. What he means by added punishment, in other words, beyond just the consequences, the natural consequences that would come. This is not, however, the point of this text, that God's going to visit even more on you. That's not the point. Another translation problem is related. The meaning of the word that the NIV translates sin here includes the enduring consequences. Consequences of evil actions. Now stop right there for a minute. Consequences. What naturally transpires because of an action. Scripture is utterly clear that God wipes away what we have done. He wipes away, He washes us of the guilt of that. But it is not a promise in Scripture to do away with all the consequences. That's what he's addressing here. Back to Bruckner. The result of these translation issues is that this part of verse 7 is better translated visiting the wickedness or the impact, that is the effects of the wickedness of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This means that God does not add punishment, but that the ongoing impact of wickedness will remain as a negative effect upon the family and community. There are those of you who sit here this morning who understand that well. You have a parent, you have a grandparent that made certain choices, that got involved in certain activities, that became addicted to certain substances, and you have continued to feel the effects of that in the family and even in your life. That's what Bruckner is saying the text is addressing. Second quote, this one from Douglas Stewart. The wording, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, means something quite different from what it might seem to mean to the casual reader. It does not mean that God would punish children and grandchildren for something their ancestors did, but that they themselves did not do. 
Rather, it describes God's just punishment of a given type of sin in each new generation as that sin, and if that sin, continues to be repeated down through the generations. In other words, God here reminded his people that they could not rightly think that some, something like, we can probably get away with doing this in our generation because God punished an earlier generation for doing it, so the punishment for it has already been given, and we don't have to worry about it. Not the case. It's interesting to compare this with the second commandment, which has to do with idolatry, which is exactly what happened with the golden calf incident, which is the context of these words. Because in the second commandment, the, the comparison is between God's mercy given to a thousand generations and God's justice expressed to the third and fourth generation. That statement to a thousand generations is the ancient writer's way of saying it has no end. That statement, third and fourth generation, ancient writer's way of saying it has a limit. So that what's being said here is God's grace is limited. But God's corrective action towards sin, limitless, pardon me, God's grace, limitless, but God's corrective action towards sin is limited. It doesn't go on forever. Now that brings us to something that has to do with our thought today. The character of the God we serve determines the impact of the life we live. Want to make your life matter? Then be sure your understanding of God is biblically mature and sound. Has to do with it because of this. As Moses talks about punishment, and as he writes about the fact that God's punishment, his, his justice is limited, it brings us face to face with a belief about God that I say with deep respect for our Christian brothers and sisters who see this matter differently. I say this with all due charity toward them. We differ on this issue. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ. But I have to tell you that the concept that God's action towards sin has no end says something about God that is foreign to the Jesus who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Picture it this way. When I was a college student, there was a very popular speaker, traveled around to different colleges, academies across the land, whose name was Steve Marshall. Some of you will remember Steve Marshall. Steve Marshall was a very dynamic, captivating speaker. I remember many things he said, but here's one thing I particularly remember. He was trying to get youth and, and, and young adults to grasp the concept of eternity. This was how he did it. He said to us, picture a massive steel ball hanging in space. It's the size of planet Earth. Massive steel ball. And a mosquito flies by comes buzzing along, gets to that steel ball, and the mosquito's wings brush up against that steel ball, against the steel ball for a few seconds, and then the mosquito, off it goes. 
A thousand years pass. Here comes another mosquito. Same thing. Another thousand years, another mosquito. Marshall said, picture that. And when those mosquitoes have worn that steel ball down to nothing, eternity will just have begun. <laughs> well, that is something I remember. So let me ask you this. What kind of God, a God of justice, who takes corrective action against sin, what kind of God would torture and burn people, keeping them alive to torture them? until that steel ball wears down to nothing and then says to them, ha, we've just started. What kind of God? So God says to Moses, my grace is limitless. My corrective action against sin, punishment, is limited. But both are part of my character. You see, when that God is your God, when that's the character of the God you serve, it forms how you respond to others. You are able to step into that space where Jesus says to Peter, you want to forgive three times, seven times, whatever? Forgive 70 times seven. You're willing to step into the space of grace being limitless. But you're also willing to step into the space of where justice is needed and strength is needed and confrontation is required, and you're willing to do so with strength based on love. Why? Because that's your God. And that's the kind of life that matters. In fact, I have a challenge for you. I want to challenge you to do something this week. I want to challenge you to think about the different affirmations you make about God, the different beliefs you have about God, the different doctrines you understand about God, and ask about each of them, what does that tell me about God? Sabbath. The fact that we believe God calls us to a weekly day of rest, what does that tell us about God? Doesn't it tell us that wholeness and wellness and relationship and connection and worship matter to God? That that's part of a robust life? That's the kind of God He is. Resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. What does that belief tell me about God? It tells me that we serve a God who says to us, when we say it's over, he says, you think it's over. You just wait. You just wait because, as Tony Campolo said it, Sunday's coming. It's not over when you think it's over with our God. Or what about the, the fact that Scripture repeatedly says God is on the side of the poor? How ought that to affect us? What does that say about God? It says that when God walks onto the playground at school, he notices the kids plastered up against the fence in the corner, and he walks over to them, and he says, come on, you're part of us too. 
That's what it says about God. I challenge you, this week, think about the affirmations you make about God and ask about each one of them. What does that tell me about God? Because the character of the God you serve will determine the impact of the life you live. So it's in the movie. In the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, it's a scene in that movie when Edmond Dantes, who has been done horribly wrong by his friends, has been arrested, has been cast into that sinister island prison, that Alcatraz of its day, the Chateau d'If. And Dorliac, the not just mean-spirited but evil-spirited warden, has taken him under his charge. He's marching him down that dank, dark, hallway toward the dungeon where he will spend much of his time. And as they go, they, they, they realize there is on the wall, somebody has chiseled into the wall a statement about God, something about the justice of God one day being done, which Dorliac finds worthy of mockery. Though Dante's at this point in his life says, no, God will act, God will come, God will defend. Torliak laughs at him, says, yeah, you know, people here who are our prisoners, they try to mark the passage of time. They lose track of time here. Some try to do it on the wall with a calendar. They soon lose interest and they die. But I have a way to help you know how many years you have spent here because every year on this day, on the anniversary of your imprisonment, I will come in and render to you a beating. You will be beaten on each of those days. Just count the beatings. You'll know how many years. But he said, today I have something special for you. He calls his guards who string Dante's up so that he will not be able to protect himself from any blow that falls. While Dante's is saying God's justice will one day prevail, Torliac says, really? We don't see God much at this time of the year in France. Dante affirms that God's justice will prevail. So Dorliac offers him a deal. I'll make you a deal, he says. Here's the deal. When God shows up, I'll stop beating you. And he begins to beat the innocent Edmond Dante's. So what about it? How might our God respond? Our God who's a God of limitless mercy, but also is a God of keen justice. Maybe it was that God who inspired another Edmund, Edmund Burke, to say, all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. As you face those moments, seldom as severe as Dante's faced, but those moments that call for action, think of the God of Moses, the God of infinite grace, the God of limited punishment in response to sin, and remind yourself the character of the God I serve 
will determine the impact of the life I live.